Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I am sex and intimacy coach Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey, friends. I've talked before on the pod about how challenging it can be to get guests who represent certain parts of the population, and that includes Asian women. Because there are so many harmful stereotypes about Asian women, I actually think it's important to acknowledge some of the very valid reasons they might choose to not appear on a show like this one. Stereotypes include being quiet, shy, and submissive, but also they're assumed to be hypersexual because we've learned to associate Asian women with geishas and happy ending massages. And specifically in this time in the United States, when the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities are experiencing a significant increase in violence against them, is it really any wonder that an individual woman might think, why would I talk to a white woman about my sex life? So no matter how much I explain the goals of the show or the types of interviews I do, it's really valid for that woman to resist anything that she thinks might further the mythology that Asian women are hypersexual and submissive. So all of that is a preface to the fact that I am thrilled to introduce you to today's guest, Michelle. I met Michelle on Instagram, where she has the Polyamorous While Asian account. She's got a lot of really great content there, so check her out. That link is in the show notes. And I want to give you a little forewarning that if you're not familiar with some of the terms used in non-monogamous communities, you're going to want to click over to the glossary I've put together in the show notes. I tried to make sure we stopped and explained each of the words we were using at the moment that we used them, but listening back, I realized we missed a whole bunch. So if you want to understand what terms like kitchen table polyamory and metamors and nesting partners and consensual non-consent mean, visit the show notes to read the glossary. All right. Michelle is a 29-year-old cisgender woman. She describes herself as Asian bisexual, polyamorous, and partnered. She describes her body as fat and chubby. I am so pleased to introduce Michelle. Michelle, I'm so excited to have you here. I reached out to you, I think, on Instagram. It's always sort of uh, dicey <laughs> to reach out to someone who has absolutely no idea who I am and say, hey, do you want to come on a podcast and talk about your sex life? So thank you so <laughs> much for coming to join me. I'm thrilled to have you here. 
Yeah, thank you uh, for inviting me on. And I honestly love talking about my sex life. So when you reached out, I was like, you know, just like a rudimentary sort of browsing to make sure, you know, just, you know, who you are. And then I was like, yeah, sure. Let's talk about sex. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's dive right in. Um, the first question I ask everyone is, what is your first memory of sexual pleasure? Oh, geez. I think I was pretty young. Um, and of course, this was before I had any vocabulary for it or just making yeah. stuff up in my mind. Like I, I think I was pretty young around like four or five mm-hmm. when I started, um, just noticing like, Oh, you know, like it kind of feels good when I like shift myself around or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember having just that vague concept of what sex was through movies or something. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the stuff that you're not supposed to look at, but like <laughs> your parents are like, oh, close your eyes. And yeah. so I remember as a kid, I didn't know it was called sex, but because of my perception of it, I called it smoothing in my head. Oh, interesting. Um, because I, I think I, I had this conception of just like skin against skin in a very yeah. smooth way, especially in that soft core way that a lot of movies portray it. Yeah, I and get so- it. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So yeah, my head, my brain just came up with just smoothing. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's like the, the earliest that I can remember. Is there a point at which you thought, Shifting around feels good. So maybe if I do it more intentionally, it will feel even better. Like, was there a point at which it became more conscious for you? There definitely was a point. Um, like, I can't remember the specific point, but sure. there definitely was a shift between like, cause I'm, I remember even at school, like, I would be at like the, like the edge of my chair or something, just kind of like rocking back and forth. But even at that time, I definitely knew that it was like a quote unquote shameful thing or something mm. that you're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really wild how early that really gets into our brains. But, um, but yeah, there was a shift eventually where like at night or like in the middle of the day when I know, uh, no one would be checking in on me, then I would like go off into my room and kind of explore a little bit. And. Did you come to something that you would now think of as an orgasm or was it just an exploration of what felt good? It was mostly an exploration of what felt good. I honestly can't remember when I first had my first orgasm. I know it was before the age of 10, but yeah, there are several years um, between that. Oh, and I think I, I discovered the <laughs> removable shower head trick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had the removable shower head that had like the different settings on it. Yep. I can't quite remember when I first discovered that maybe when I was like seven or so. And also, yeah, I think I had the sensations of an orgasm before I knew what that was. Yeah. Um, which is part of why I think it's hard to remember when I first Absolutely. started. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of kids are having orgasms without having any language for it. And so they're, they're not even sure if it's a thing, <laughs> let alone mm-hmm. what it is. Um, right. Yeah. So you said that you weren't supposed to be watching the sort of soft core movies. What were you mm-hmm. hearing in your home about sex and sexuality? It's hard to remember that young because mm-hmm. I feel like there weren't a lot of very explicit notions about it and, um, until I was puberty age. But yeah, my, um, it's very interesting. My mother always had this, uh, like with movies and TV show, violence was Definitely a lot more acceptable to view and to consume and stuff, but mm. anything sexual, even like 
the suggestion of it. Yeah. Anything mm-hmm. suggestive was just like, Oh no, turn it off or like, you know, don't watch it or anything like that. Um, so yeah, there was always that weird balance. Yeah. But yeah, it, it wasn't until I think puberty that I really remember explicit messages of like, you know, don't, you know, don't have sex, you know, you'll get pregnant and stuff or, or whatever. Just you shouldn't do it. Yeah. So you, identify as Asian American, you told me. Are both mm-hmm. of your parents Asian or do you are you mixed race? Yeah, my uh, parents are from uh, China and Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Okay. So were you aware of receiving different messages around sex and sexuality than your other friends who maybe came from white families? Yeah, it's, that's an interesting one. Um, because I think also in a way, because I wasn't raised religious, that was also a different thing. Um, because basically elementary school through high school, almost everyone that I was friends with was raised with some sort of religious background, mostly some sort of Christianity. Yeah. Um, and because of that, I think there's that sort of flavor of, you know, sexual shame and just like, ooh, taboo and whatnot. So, so I feel like there is, sub parallel there. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I was in middle school and that was around the first time I read my first book that had racy scenes in it. It was like an Anne Rice book, I think. Oh no, it was like a Stephen King book and there were like these explicit scenes in there. And I remember like on the bus or at lunch or whatever showing my friends like, oh, look at what it says here. And, and yeah, we, we all had similar reactions. And, and there were even some kids that were like, Oh, no, I, I won't be reading that. That's, oh. that's not good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I don't, we didn't really talk about it a whole lot. Mm-hmm. So I think I want to just stop here and put a pin for a second in the fact that I approach a fair number of Asian people to be on this show because diversity is and representation is really important to me. And it's very rare for someone of Asian descent to say yes. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that um, Mm -hmm. that are cultural as well as just why does this white woman want to ask me about my sex (laughs) life? (laughs) Right. Um, So I have a lot of questions that are about how you as an Asian person learned about sex and deal with sex. And I also want to say that there are things I don't know. So if I ask mm-hmm. anything in an inappropriate way, would you be okay with letting me know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. So what about your parents? Did you see them being affectionate? Like what kinds of dynamics were you seeing in your household around intimacy and sexuality? So um, my parents divorced when I was about six or seven years old. Um, and so with regard to that, I don't really remember intimacy between my biological parents very much. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, I did, like my sister and I stayed with our mother. And so there was a lot of, I, I think since I was a little bit older, I feel like I could process it a little bit more than my sister could at the time. I think it negatively, like it impacted her a bit more negatively, I think, because she was so young. But yeah, like my mom, um, for a while was like a, like a serial monogamous until she like remarried. And so, you know, as a kid, you know, living on the same roof as a parent who is actively dating, you'll see stuff and hear stuff. 
<laughs> no, no matter how well they like try to hide it, like it's <laughs> not a huge house. So yeah, stuff happens. Yeah. And was she dating mostly white men? Since you said that you were in a largely white area, white Christian men? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> right. Like in, especially in like Portland and the Portland area, it is just a predominantly white um, population. And then there could be like this whole conversation about with like Asian folks of, you know, a notion of assimilation mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Is she married now? She is married now. Yeah, she's married now and uh, also has two other children. So I have a total of three sisters. Oh, okay. And so is this the same marriage that you mentioned when you were younger? She got married when you were younger? Um, so like she got divorced when I was about seven. And then when she remarried, I was about 14, 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. So when she got remarried, what kind of intimacy or affection did you see between her and her new husband? If any? Um, I think she was still pretty cagey with regard to showing, uh, showing sexuality and whatnot. And so, you know, um, so she just continued to hide that fact and, and everything. Yeah. Mm. So was there ever any conversation as you started growing up and going through puberty? Did she have the talk with you? <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. Um, so, so I definitely, I think was of an age with regard to the internet as well that I had unfettered access to the internet for a bit. Mm-hmm. And so I like, you know, started watching porn and stuff at like a fairly young age on like the family computer. <laughs> and- <laughs> Did you know how to delete the browser history? <laughs> oh, absolutely not. And I am almost a hundred percent certain that my mom saw some pretty dodgy sites in like the, the history or whatever and just never talked to me about it because she's just so uncomfortable talking uh-huh. about those things. So yeah. I'm almost absolutely certain that that's happened. <laughs> but yeah, so when I, yeah, when I first got my period, I was about 11. And so that's when my mom gave me like the talk. But it's also a previous, like before that, I remember, I think I was probably about 10 that my mom with her boyfriend at the time, like, I can't, I honestly can't remember how it came up. All I remember is that we were all in the car together and like my mom's boyfriend was driving and somehow it came up. And so like, he was kind of doing his best to address Mm. the topic. I honestly can't remember word for word what was said, but it was just so clear that my mom was just so uncomfortable with the topic that like, <laughs> it was almost on him to <laughs> discuss certain things about what sex was. And it was, I just remember the feeling of it being so odd. Like my sister and I in the back seat were driving to or from somewhere. My mom's being very quiet. Um, so yeah, when we finally did the talk, I remember I had to pretend <laughs> that I didn't know as much as I did. Um, <laughs> that I have not seen as much as, as I've seen, you know, for better and worse. Um, I remember when I like walked into my mom's room, she called me in and she had this like image up on the computer of like a basically black and white, like very basic diagram of a penis and uh-huh. stuff with like uh labels and arrows and whatnot. And part of it was because even since I was a little kid, I just haven't been very good with stress and my emotions, but also I was trying to ham it up a little bit. And so I started crying a little bit. And I, 
<laughs> I think partially also because I know uh, knew that that would make my mom kind of uncomfortable too and would soften whatever she was going to try to say. Uh-huh. And so I remember crying a little bit and her like holding me. And again, I don't remember word for word what she said, but like she's like, this is a penis, you know, like if you have sex, you're going to get pregnant. Um, so don't mm-hmm. do it like that. I, th- I feel like that was the gist of it. Yeah. And I was... I definitely played up the sort of like innocent, oh, this is also scary and like <laughs> crying. <laughs> God, it was, it was just so awkward. <laughs> so, um, you said that you were watching porn on the family computer. What <laughs> kinds of porn were you watching? What topics? I can't remember a lot specifically. I do know that I would. <laughs> not just look up porn sites. Like, even though I had access to porn sites, like, I don't even remember what I would type in. Porn into Google or something. I, I don't remember. <laughs> um, but I would also look up <laughs> Wikipedia articles, like Wikipedia articles of all the genitals. Cause like, you know, in some Wikipedia articles, they also have explicit pictures on there. Sure. Masturbation or something. And also, I remember at the time, like the era of flash games, uh-huh. I would go onto websites that had like explicit flash games. And so oh. then I would play those. <laughs> and so I had played a lot of like really very explicit sexual um, flash games and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, that's what I mostly remember. I definitely looked up other stuff. But I, yeah, I honestly can't remember what I did to search for specific sites. That's okay. What was it about those flash games that was so intriguing to you? I think it was just like, it was kind of interactive. And also, I think like also the mind of a kid too, where it's just like a game and mm-hmm. and whatever, these animations and stuff like that. And I think it was also maybe in a way just less intimidating sometimes um, because like it is very explicit, but it is still mostly cartoony. Mm. And also I think eventually discovering animated porn and stuff that there's just, there's just so much you can do <laughs> when you're just <laughs> animating something. Um, I just thought it was fun, <laughs> fun and sexually arousing at the same time. Well, it's really interesting to me that you weren't just motivated by the physical pleasure. You also mm-hmm. were motivated by curiosity about sex, about the topic of sex, so that you were going out and seeking all of these things. And the arousal that came with them, along with the information that came with them. Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, my grandparents had and i i have that book today because i looked at that book so much not just for the sexual content there was a lot of stuff like there was a time when i was a kid like i wanted to be a doctor you know so there's a lot of stuff but like a a book called i'm like looking at it right now abcs of the human body Uh and like the dust covers all tattered and stuff at this point but (laughs) yeah i remember there was a part where like all the you know the reproductive organs and about sex and whatever i would definitely look at those pages i would look at so many other parts of the book as well Mm -hmm. but yeah i just like learning about all the parts. So yeah, there was there was definitely a mix of being curious about sex in and of itself and the whole wide world out there at my, my fingertips via the interwebs, but also I guess just like the technical side of it as well. Yeah. Hey friends. We've now had two classes in the Fall in Love with Your Sex Life series, A Year of Sexy Secrets. And I'm loving how it's going. So far, we've talked about dipping your toes into kink and navigating sex if you have body image issues. Coming up this Sunday, February 19, is wanting to want sex. 
diving into libido and desire. Then, the following week, Sunday, February 26, is I'm a feminist. Why do I want to be spanked? After that, we'll transition to monthly classes on the final Sunday of each month, beginning March 26. All classes are at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. There'll be 14 classes in total, and you're welcome to cherry pick the ones you want to attend or purchase a pass to get them all. Plus, if you missed the first two classes, you can now purchase recordings so you don't miss a thing. Classes are recorded so everyone who registers will get a copy, whether you're able to attend in person or not. You're welcome to send questions in advance if you know you can't be there, and I'll make sure to answer them on the recording. Each class is scheduled for 90 minutes, and I'll stay on the line with the recording running for up to another half hour to make sure we cover all of the questions you've got. In our next class on Sunday, February 19th, we're diving into the common lament, I want to want sex. Why won't my body get on board? The following week, we'll talk about the hot topic of why spanking and feminism or any type of submission and being a strong female are not actually in conflict with each other at all. Registration is open now at leahcarry.com forward slash classes. You can register for just the wanting to want sex, diving into libido and desire class on February 19th or a bundle of the February classes, or the entire series. And to sweeten the pot, here's an offer only for podcast listeners. Use the link in the show notes to leave a review for the Good Girls Talk About Sex podcast. When it's posted, take a screenshot, send it to me, and I'll send you a coupon for $5 off a class. If you're feeling turned on by the very idea of having these conversations in a safe, supportive, non-judgmental space, register right now while you're still excited about it. It's so easy to let your sex life take a backseat to all of the other stressors. So flip the script right now while you're feeling the energy. Make sex a priority. Go to leahcarry.com forward slash classes to register, and that link is in the show description of the app you're listening on now. Let's make 2023 the year you fall in love with your sex life. And were you at this point, so we're still talking fairly young, like... 10, 12, mm-hmm. maybe? Yeah, I think when I first started using the family computer, I was probably like 10. Yeah. And so were you primarily watching straight monogamous stuff? Because I know now you're bisexual, you're polyamorous. Like, was mm-hmm. that playing into those things at all when you were a kid? Yeah, I think, unsurprisingly, it is mostly monogamous or just dyadic mm-hmm. sex that I was looking up and it was predominantly straight and white. Yeah, I can yeah. I can say that for certain. Although like when I um started like I do remember when I was like young and probably around puberty and masturbating, I would think of scenarios with multiple people. Mm-hmm. But again, I I don't think I ever 
thought that was necessarily weird. Mm-hmm. Um, weirder than anything else. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think I, at that point, sought out porn that had maybe like group sex or, or that was maybe more queer or anything at that time. But I was definitely in my imagination, like in a, when I was just in my room by myself or something, definitely thinking of queer scenarios and like group scenarios without thinking of them as such. And what about kink? Were your fantasies and what you were watching fairly, quote unquote, vanilla? I hate that term, but we don't have a better <laughs> one. Um, yeah. <laughs> or was there some aspect of kink involved in all of that for you? I believe there was. Although it's interesting because like with the porn that I did watch, I don't think I sought out anything particularly kinky. I think I would randomly come up against like kinky stuff, but I don't sure. remember a lot of like, um, you know, like the very uh, graphic, like very like sadomasochistic kind of porn. Like I don't think I was drawn to that at the time. And yeah, I can't quite remember when I became aware of kink formally. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in my fantasies... Like, I don't, I don't think they were necessarily very kinky. Just, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I can't quite remember. I think they were very relationship focused or like connection yeah. focused, mm-hmm. like very dialogue heavy <laughs> or, or, or something. <laughs> or yeah, yeah, very, very much about the dynamic. Um, and, uh, like I don't, you know, I don't remember necessarily imagining very many implements or anything, but it, I think it was just imagining a lot of scenarios. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at what point did you take all of this curiosity and energy and bring another person into the experience with you, whether that was a first kiss, a a first partner, whatever it was for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think like, yeah, first kiss, like first time having sex, first partner was all rolled into one. Um, So I was 18 and I um, was a freshman in college. Yeah. So it was at the first person uh, that I ever considered a partner because yeah, I didn't date at all or anything in in high school. I was definitely horny in high school, but <laughs> also also I didn't. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it was very awkward, even more awkward at that time. And also didn't find my peers necessarily compelling. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you know, for better and worse, my first partner was someone who was significantly older than me. But he was also the person who introduced me to the concept formally of like non-monogamy. And yeah, so he was the first person that I had sex with and first person I kissed and, and all of that. Yeah. When you say significantly older, do you mean you were a freshman and he was a senior or? Significantly older in that I was 18 and he was 32. Okay. So yes, Mm -hmm. fairly significant (laughs) age difference. Mm -hmm. And how did that feel for you? Was that a good match for you at the time? I mean, in retrospect, no. Um, At the time, (laughs) it was very exciting. Um, Because yeah, I had no sexual experience, no relationship experience. But now this like 32 year old is like talking to me and um, and it's like very exciting. It's giving me like the butterflies in my stomach and all of those exciting kind of naive, uh, beginner feelings. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, at the time I just thought it was very exciting because he was also like this nomadic type and like it all looking back <laughs> at it all, it just really <laughs> makes me just like smack, want to smack my forehead against the desk multiple <laughs> times. <laughs> yeah. I still go to therapy about it, but, um, yeah, that was my first sexual experience. And for a first time, it wasn't bad. Like, I remember having this thought that like, oh, it's going to hurt because I like, 
<laughs> in my teenage years, I was super into family opera, read a lot of fan fiction, you know, and I've read a lot of smut. And uh-huh. so it's always like, not always, but there's this, like, that idea that the first time always hurts and that there's like blood and stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the first time, like, uh, yeah, it did sting a little bit, but it didn't hurt nearly as much as I thought it would. Um, I wasn't like a bleeding or whatever. There was like a little bit of spotting. But yeah, for a first time, I was like, oh, wow, it wasn't as scary as I thought it might be. There are some parts that I think, of course, that in my mind, I definitely romanticized as like, oh, it's just, it's this all-consuming euphoric feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and while it was pleasurable, it wasn't like that. But yeah, so for a first time, even though I hate that ex now, for a first time, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> How long did you stay with him? Um, that relationship lasted about five years. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for a real long time, especially at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you said that in your fantasies, you were primarily fantasizing about the dynamic, the relationship and connection piece of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you get what you were looking for in that relationship in terms of connection? I think for a time, I think I did. Or it was for a time satisfying certain aspects, um, but hardly anything that was, mm, that I would say is particularly healthy or sustainable. Mm. Um, because like, yeah, you know, I was, uh, for a while, you know, as a adolescent, as a teenager, um, oftentimes instead of necessarily thinking of my classmates, I would often think of like my teachers and authority figures and things like that. And I think in that time, I eventually, um, learned more about kink and power dynamics and, and whatnot. And, figured that I might be into things like pain play or, you know, power differentials and things. And so in this case, like I was this prime uh, (laughs) target in a way uh, for this guy to take advantage of more or less with regard to like, oh, you know, she is very open to a lot of things. Like I do like learning and experiencing a lot of things. So open to a lot of things, um, you know, I really t- can take advantage of the like interest in like older partners angle and just, yeah, having no experience before. And so kind of not having really standards set yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 Or, or boundaries or something. Cause also growing up, I feel like I was raised with this notion almost that boundaries was a bad thing because it's disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that any sort of pushback or standing your ground is, is just disrespectful. Um, so yeah, I, I obviously took that into that relationship. Do you think that those messages about boundaries were specific to your family or is that a cultural thing? I think it's definitely difficult to try to think about the cultural aspect, um, because Like, I think it is a bit of both that I think my family, specifically through my mother, had a kind of mix of both of the Chinese or Taiwanese upbringing, as well as more of this American sensibility, I suppose, Mm -hmm. where there was this sense of this traditionalism, but also this mm, slightly more liberatory feeling as well. It's it's just a, it was like a weird mix of sorts. So I think culturally that the boundary thing definitely did exist, you know, where my mother grew up, because you can see it in like my grandmother as well and uh, other family members as well. And it's like, it's, it's not 
always the same kind of flavor. But yeah, there isn't meant, there aren't many examples within my family specifically of healthy boundaries. Mm. Um, cause to either, um, to either get around those, you kind of have to just not talk about it, like kind of a don't ask, don't tell sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not able to be particularly open with family. And culturally, I think you can see that a lot in like Chinese cultures and stuff like that. But yeah, I also don't want to talk too broadly. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, okay. So you were talking about this first partner. And you said he's the one who introduced you to non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that some? Like, were you open to it right away? How did he introduce it? Like, what was that process like for you? I think part of it was because my parents divorced when I was so young. And so there was a little bit of priming there that, you know, monogamy doesn't always end well. Mm. And also then just like all the like TV shows, movies, a lot of media that revolve around monogamy and romantic love and, and things like that. Um, and especially those romantic or even like rom-coms where there's like one person who has to choose between two different people. And oftentimes those two different people are equally kind of good. Like they have their pros and cons and they're about equal. And then more often than not, they have to like give one of them like a real big flaw or something in order to make the choice easier. It's but, so frustrating. Yeah. I'm like, why can't you ever just choose both? Why? Exactly. <laughs> so there was in my head, this beginning, beginnings of these thoughts of like, isn't this a thing that adults can agree on? Uh, isn't this a thing that they can maybe talk about and share? Is that a thing that exists? And this was, of course, before I had specific vocabulary for that. So it just was a thing that in the back of my mind. And even as a teenager, for all intents and purposes, I was still on the monogamy marriage track mm-hmm. um, because I didn't know there was any other options. But it was always there, kind of nagging mm-hmm. me at the back of my mind. And then this partner, um, who at the time I didn't know this, which red flag, that he had another partner. And then eventually, as we were talking, he suggests I read the book Sex at Dawn. Wait, so just a second. mm -hmm. So he had another partner, but you were not aware. So you thought you were in a monogamous relationship, and you were not. Is that correct? Yeah. So they're in the, the, I guess, in the talking stages, there was this sense of just, yeah, just like us, the two of us talking. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, I mean, it's been like 10 years now, but I think there were certain things that he was dropping as hints to be like, he wasn't necessarily completely hiding this person Hmm. because he gave me his Facebook. And so on his Facebook, there was this picture of him and another person. And one time I was like, uh, we were like sending each other mail and he like, uh, gave me an address and it said care of and the name of this person. Uh-huh. And so it was, yeah, it, it was, it was, I was all not good. You know, it's like, <laughs> I do not recommend someone does this. If someone does this to you, that's nothing less than a yellow flag. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would call it bright orange. <laughs> right, right. If not a red flag, then bright orange. Um, yeah. but yeah, eventually he, I think before we, I don't know, quote unquote, became official or something. He recommended I read the book, uh, read the book Sex at Dawn. And I was aware of that book. Um, and so I, yeah, went to like Powell's bookstore and picked it up and read it. And I remember reading it and thinking like, wow, a lot of this makes sense. Mm. Um, a lot of this clicks like, okay, this non-monogamy, polyamory thing and starting to get vocabulary for it. And yeah, I mean, ever since then, I think it all just kind of clicked 
that the non-monogamy thing was in fact a viable thing. Adults mm. uh, can and do do this and have done this for a long, long time in, in a bunch of different ways and scenarios. So, yeah. And did it feel like, I, I hear you saying that you recognize that it was a valid choice. Did it immediately feel like a valid choice for you? Yeah, yeah. And that's why... Um, because, yeah, I mean, of course, he used that as a segue. And I, I remember asking him, because I think there were enough breadcrumbs dropped, that <laughs> I was asking him, oh, did you suggest I read this book because you want to do the non-monogamy thing or that uh -huh. you have another partner? And, yeah, that was indeed the case. And he himself was also brand new to non-monogamy. So it's, he was only like oh, good. three months ahead. Well, only like three months ahead of, <laughs> of where I was at. Um, I feel like it's not just orange. <laughs> like this is hot, hot oh, orange. Yeah. I mean, really <laughs> by this time, it's red. As an adult now, like I wouldn't even have gone that far because yeah. I would have already seen all the terrible signs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Um, but yeah, when I read that book, I was like, wow, this really makes sense. And it seems like something I want to do. Yeah. So at this point, were you aware that you were attracted to more than one gender? It's, it feels very silly because I don't think I, in my head, called myself a bisexual until maybe four or five years ago. Uh -huh. I've def I was definitely attracted to like more than one gender. And at the time, I just thought that I was aesthetically attracted to women. Because yeah. like, women are pretty. They're so yeah. beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and right. And like I said before, like when I was younger, a lot of my sexual fantasies involved group settings mm -hmm. in which there were men and women. But yeah, I don't know why it took me so long to be like, oh, duh, Michelle, you're bisexual, you it's dummy. It's actually really common. <laughs> <laughs> it's Not only is it very common, I had the exact same experience. Um, because so much of our media really sexualizes the female form mm. that those of us who are sexually attracted to women think, oh, everybody thinks this because we were all sexualized the same way without realizing that some people just look at it and think, oh, yeah, that's pretty. Not, oh, yeah, I want to touch that. <laughs> mm -hmm, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, I had crushes on girls all through high school, all through college. And it wasn't until I was out of college for a couple of years that I like actually fell hard for a girl and wanted mm. to be in a relationship with her. Then I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Maybe this is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> All of those other crushes were just, uh. no, that's, that's not a thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. so, yeah, it's, it feels so silly. Like it also makes sense, you know, thinking mm -hmm. about, um, you know, just everything around us and all the very cis heteronormative, yeah. mononormative narratives. But like, I was also already like involved with like two partners who are like now married and we were all very affectionate with each other at the very least. And then also like sexual. And even at that time, the word bisexual just didn't even pop up because <laughs> it also just felt so organic too. And, mm -hmm. and so I think I feel kind of fortunate in that like my coming out to myself wasn't particularly dramatic or traumatic because I was like, Oh, this is just 
oh, this is just me. Oh, duh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, duh. And <laughs> also, fortunately, even though, you know, my mother has uh, socially some uh, more conservative leanings, I always knew growing up that, like, she wouldn't necessarily care if I was gay. And she probably mm-hmm. thought I was gay for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, like, she wouldn't be particularly comfortable. Like, she still wouldn't handle it super well. But I knew that's not something, you know, one of the things she would kick me out for. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so I think that also helped me uh, realize, like, oh, okay, yeah, duh, duh, I'm bisexual. And it's kind of a big deal, but also really not a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I also want to just pause for a second on the word bisexual, because there is much conversation in the queer community around bisexual versus pansexual. Mm-hmm. So can you talk for a minute about how you understand those words and how you make the choices you do around how you use them? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, <laughs> um, I guess this is the the linguist in me that comes out <laughs> like this is what, <laughs> what I got my little my little piece of paper for um is that words are made up and <laughs> like labels are useful in so much as they're useful and especially in talking within queer discourse is that part of the point of queerness is to kind of highlight and or just normalize or at least destigmatize queerness mm. and to destigmatize difference and to actually embrace difference, at least I would think. And so bisexuality and pansexuality, there are some people who won't like this, but they are mostly the same. They overlap much more than they differ. That doesn't mean that there aren't meaningful differences. And that doesn't mean that there are differences that Let's see, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to not use too many negatives. (laughs) Like some differences do matter to some people. And I think that is okay. I think when people focus on those differences more than the overlap, that's when we get into an issue. And that's when we get into like, oh, well, you're actually using these labels within queerness to actually to further divide and Mm -hmm. to further kind of validate heteronormativity in in a way, in a way. I'm not saying that it's just like, oh, you're, I don't know. Yeah, just in a way. And so, yeah, they overlap much more than they differ. They're mostly the same. Some people do prefer one term over over the other. However, I think trying to go over the minutia of the differences does not matter. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is important in general. Mm-hmm. Again, saying that the specific labels can be important to different people, and I think that can be good. But focusing on the dif- those differences just creates more problems where there just are none. Mm-hmm. I really like how you just parsed that all out. And I feel like <laughs> there are going to be some listeners who are not even familiar with what we're talking about. So just for a second, I'm going to go through the <laughs> <laughs> go through the discourse, which is the conversation that happens in the queer community is if you're bisexual, then that must mean that you are interested in men and women you are interested in the binary. And therefore, that invalidates trans people, non-binary people, and anybody else who's sort of gender fluid, gender queer. And so, therefore, the term bisexual is transphobic, and you should be using the word pansexual, meaning I am attracted to all genders. I can only speak for myself, 
and say that when I was coming of age and realized that I was, in fact, attracted to more than one gender, the only word available to me was bisexual. Mm. And I felt so seen. I felt like, oh, my God, there's finally something that is me that I clung to that word. And so I still think of myself as bisexual, even though it probably would be more accurate for me to say that I am pansexual. I choose to use the word bisexual to mean, yes, there is a binary. I am attracted to two types of people, people who look like me and people who don't look like me. (laughs) (laughs) And, And there does not need to be, just like you were saying, there doesn't need to be this picking apart of the differences it is a way that we divide ourselves. But um, mm-hmm. thank you for going down that little detour with me. Oh, God. I mean, that could be like a podcast episode in and of itself, right? Do you struggle with how your body looks during sex? You're not alone. Growing up as little girls, most of us learned that our worth was entirely tied to how we look. We saw TV shows and movies and fashion magazines that showed a very narrow range of bodies, and we were told that those were the perfect, desirable bodies. The message, if you don't look like that, you're not worthy of love. But here's the not-so-secret secret. They're lying. There are people who want to love you in the body you're in today. I promise they want to see your body. They want to touch your body. They want to worship your body. I promise. But even if a person is already touching you, if you don't believe you're worthy of their time, attention, affection, you'll never let yourself relax enough to enjoy it. And you deserve to relax. You deserve to let yourself be seen and touched and worshipped. You deserve to experience pleasure without thinking about how much your arms jiggle. You deserve to have sex in any position you want, not just the one where you think you look the thinnest. Would you tell your daughter or sister or best friend that they don't deserve love? because they don't look like Kim Kardashian? Of course not. So let's do something to help you stop saying that to yourself. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life. And I would be honored to be your coach on the journey to get there. I'm queer, kinky, and non-monogamy friendly, and I would love to talk with you. So for more information and to schedule your free discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching for your free discovery call. That link is in the episode description on the app you're listening on now. Back to the show. The guy who you were dating had told you that he was non-monogamous, had offered you the book. You said, yeah, let's do this. At what point did you opt into non-monogamy, not just for him, but for yourself? When did you first get involved in a non-monogamous situation? 
it feels all kind of muddled because it all feels very related to one another, these sequence of events that like me reading the book felt like me kind of opting in. Because mm. once I was reading the book, by the time I was done with the book, I was like, you know, this is definitely the route I want to take. Like, mm-hmm. it all makes so much more sense than monogamy. Fills a lot of gaps that I had with regard to monogamy, even though I was already, like, I was on the monogamy train, but there were gaps. And mm-hmm. so this helped fill a lot of those gaps. Like, ah, this makes more sense. This is logical. This is, it just, it seems so reasonable. Oh, God. Like, <laughs> 18 year show. So naive. <laughs> but also, at the same time, like, it really was a, like, a... Almost a point of no return at that point, even if the, even though I didn't know that at the time yet. But yeah, like after reading that and having conversation with him, like, you know, he talked about how he had, um, you know, another partner. And then it just kind of went from there of just like, okay, cause I, I remember when he officially said that he had another partner, it didn't feel that shocking. It didn't feel mm. like a betrayal yet. I mean, at the time, yeah, like it didn't feel like a betrayal at this time. It would definitely be a red flag. But yeah, the time I was like, you know, okay, cool. I don't think I feel threatened or jealous or anything. Um, and also it, it really helped that like she was also pretty chill and pretty cool too. Mm-hmm. And it really just started from there. And gosh, a lot of lessons learned the hard way after that. <laughs> <laughs> um you and I have been joking about colors of flags, but I just realized there are <laughs> going to be some people who don't understand why it's a potential red flag mm. that somebody would get involved with you and then tell you after the involvement had begun that they were non-monogamous. So can you speak to that? Yeah. So these days, you know, I do have a little bit of empathy for people who don't outright, you know, come out as non-monogamous. Because there is a lot of stigma and there can be a lot of aggressive pushback. So I can have a bit of empathy for that. However, I think also in this case, what's also important is that there was a bit of trickery happening that wasn't just like protecting himself from harm. It mm. was more of like wanting to have his cake and eat it too. And like, I mm-hmm. am a proponent of wanting your cake and, you know, like having your cake and eating it too. But... <laughs> Like consent is a huge thing. And I think the yeah. uh, the big problem here is that, you know, you can't uh, have fully informed consent to go into a relationship if you're not fully informed. Exactly. Um, you can't enter a dynamic with full consent if you don't know that, oh, yeah, this person will also be spending time with this other person, like romantically and or sexually. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you have a right to know that. <laughs> Not to mention, there were several other major power differentials going on. Your age, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's a lot going on in this particular dynamic that throws up flags of various Mm -hmm. colors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At the time, too, I remember one of the first things he said to me, because we were at a Barnes and Noble, I was minding my my own business. I had my backpack on because I just got out of class. And like one of the first things he asked me was, am I going to high school or am I going to college? Uh, um, yeah. And so like looking back, I was just like, Michelle, <laughs> maybe Michelle <laughs> run away. <laughs> but you know, it, uh, it all happened how it happened. And you know, here, here we are now. <laughs> yeah. So what was your first non-monogamous experience like for you? Um, I mean, there was a lot of bad. There was absolutely a lot of bad that like still, I think, 
the body has kept score. That's for sure. Mm, yeah. <laughs> There's, yeah, a lot of things that I had to learn about boundaries that I had to learn about, you know, what I had as a, like my rights as a person, an autonomous person. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, mm -hmm. give mm -hmm. us some examples of what that means. Yeah. Yeah. For example, like I thought, yeah, first off, this partner, had this conception of like a tribe, you know, like all kind of like the kitchen table thing, but maybe mm -hmm. even more integrated than that. And so like metamors kind of almost as an imperative to meet metamors. Uh, there was definitely this feeling that like I would be judged or looked down on if I didn't want to meet my metamor. Mm. Um, so that's, that's a flag uh, because you don't have to, you don't have to be involved with your metamors at all. You know, as long as you're respectful and whatever, that's totally fine but you do not have to necessarily even get along with your metamors. Yeah. Uh, to go along with that, just doing things that I didn't want to do in the group space, um, like being involved in sexual situations that I didn't fully like consent to. But at the same time, at the time, I just also didn't feel like I had the right to stand up for myself. And so mm -hmm. I was involved in like a threesome one time that I really did not want to be involved in. And I felt, so shitty afterwards i was like crying for an hour i'm sorry and uh yeah so so things like that where i felt like i had to go along with certain things in order to be cool basically to be mm -hmm. the cool girlfriend that's like very chill very cool very good with the non-monogamy thing and is yeah. like so progressive and radical and <laughs> so beyond my years because i'm cool with this thing <laughs> um but yeah, boundaries, boundaries are important. Boundaries are not only important, but they are necessary for any healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are times when I, oh, the whole thing where it's like, if I would have known, I could have blah, 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 blah. But to just say no to certain things. And if he wasn't okay with that, then, you know, goodbye, that mm -hmm. dynamic, because obviously what he wants is diametrically opposed to what I want. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the main thing I think I've learned from the beginning, my beginnings in non-monogamy are that boundaries are foundational to everything. Yes. And I heard you say earlier that you grew up learning that you maybe weren't supposed to have boundaries. So how mm -hmm. did you cross that bridge? Um, I think it, it was part of it was just. I think just growing up into like adulthood, because at the time I was also doing college and, you know, working and, and things like that. So surrounding myself with other people, you know, outside of family and, and things like that. So mingling with people at school, people at work, having to do more of the adult things like paying rent and paying bills and, and all of that. And so some of those things, like you have to have boundaries around or you have to have a certain, I don't know, discipline around or something, which I think is related to boundaries. And also with that relationship, I think I gradually and gradually and gradually just got fed up. So it got to the point where it is almost this, uh, just the protective mechanisms kicking in. Whereas mm -hmm. before, and, and still today, I still have a lot of protective mechanisms that are like evasion <laughs> based, where it's like, mm -hmm. oh, not good, avoid or go around or ignore or there, yeah, we gotta, there's gotta be a way around it. Um, but there came to a point where like usually I freeze or like flight with the fight or flight, but mm -hmm. then that turned into fight. Mm. And so I think also, it's no coincidence that finally, when I got my first 
full-time job after college. Yeah, I finished college. And then I also had uh, cultivated uh, several other relationships that I was finally like, oh, yeah, I'm breaking up with you. Like, this is the final straw. We are breaking up. Mm. So yeah, I think it was a combination of just becoming fed up with that relationship, learning a lot of lessons the hard way, you know, learning not what not to do. And then also just in my life, just having some better circumstances to mm-hmm. as, as a foundation and to support me. Then I felt comfortable enough, you know, starting next chapter of that journey. So what does this chapter of the journey look like? What is your sort of relationship landscape look like right now? <laughs> It's still messy because I'm a messy human being. Human beings are messy. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you know, I often think 10, you know, think back 10 years ago or even five years ago and just how different it seems and how different I feel like as a person. Like there's still these very um, fundamental similarities, uh, these fundamental uh, common threads throughout the timeline. But at the same time, I just know that I will never get into a relationship even nearly as bad as that ever again. Mm. Um, part of that is because of, you know, healthy growth. Part of that is because I think it worsened my avoidance a little bit. Hmm. And so <laughs> we're having to play this game of like, you know, two steps forward, one step back. But, you know, we're we're inching forward. Um, like these days, I have, I don't even know how to quantify them sometimes because I think over the years, like the layer between quote unquote partner or quote unquote friend kind of dissolves over time. And mm. I, um, you know, I often call myself as like polyamorous, solo polyamorous with relationship anarchist leadings because I do like the idea of there not being any enforced hierarchy about treating each dynamic as their its own thing. And so bringing to it and taking from each dynamic what is good within that, you know, uh, mm. within the parameters of what's seems healthy and sustainable for all parties involved. My longest term relationships are about six, seven years old. Like I often find myself having partners who have themselves nesting or anchor partners. Um, and that works for me well for me at this time because as a solo polyamorous person in this time of my life, I really like living alone and just kind of doing a lot of things just kind of on my own and being able to enter space with partners whenever it's convenient you know, for all of us. And um, yeah, I think kind of in a nutshell, that's that's what my the relationship space is like for me these days. I get so many messages from listeners saying, thank you for the show. I've listened to the whole back catalog and it's helped me completely transform my sex life. Are you one of those people? If so, I'd love to have your support so I can keep growing this show and bringing a new vision of sexuality to the world. If you haven't done it yet, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. I know the podcast industry does not make reviewing a show easy. So go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And it should lead you through the process of posting a review. I'd love to get 100 reviews by the end of the year, and I could use your help. And if you have the financial resources to support the sex-positive work I do, I'd be so grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, 
but it makes a huge difference to me. There's no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. And I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are now either illegal or heavily legislated. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And speaking of Patreon, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free for everyone to listen to. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access it. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a contributor, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. How do you keep a calendar? <laughs> it's, it's really it's really that stereotype that like Google Calendar is life. That um, even for things not related to, you know, partners and whatever, like I will forget things if I do not consult my Google Calendar multiple times a day. And like, I'm also a list keeper. So like I, you know, to-do lists and stuff like it's, it really is crucial <laughs> to help me function um, in my day to day and week to week. But yeah, it's like, it's a colorful tapestry, that Google <laughs> calendar. And, um, and, and also like what works for me is that even the partner that I see the most often, I see maybe once a week. So it's not like I'm seeing multiple partners like multiple times a week. Mm -hmm. um, there are some partners where I only see them maybe once every other month. Um, and that's what works with our schedules. And that seems to be a thing that works for us long term so far. So I am someone who needs that sort of anchor slash nesting partner because I want to know who I'm coming home to. That mm -hmm. kind of stability is really important to me. And I want to spend a lot of time with him. Mm -hmm. And then other people can sort of come and go from that, but he's the center. There are some people for whom that sort of uh, stability or um, increase in time is less important. Mm -hmm. And so it's what I think I want to get to is it sounds like this setup is fulfilling to you, not like you're sitting there and wishing, gosh, I wish I could spend five nights a week with this person, but that's just not going to work. It <laughs> sounds like for you, this is the fulfilling situation. It is definitely in my timeline, the most fulfilling structure and set of circumstances that I've experienced so far. Um, it's not perfect. It's definitely far from perfect because there's, um, like with my first partner, I lived with him for like two to three years. And there are some aspects of that that I do miss. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like having very just easy access to like, oh, they're in the next room so I can get a hug from them or some, you know, very face to face affirmation or whatever. Or, you know, I wake up and he has left like a little chai next to my bed. Like there's certain things that like that come with a nesting partner that I no longer experience. Um, that doesn't mean I can't get other certain needs met. You know, I just have to find different ways. And it can be difficult because I'm a person who likes a lot of my alone time. 
time away. But I can uh, go too far um, in that direction sometimes. And I can, yeah, when I lose sight, when I lose track, and um, I can be like, oh, wow, I am now lonely <laughs> because I I didn't uh, do my due diligence in reaching out and scheduling enough time or whatever. And so, yeah, there are times where there are dips because I'm like, oh, gosh, I uh, didn't properly maintain this machine. But at the same time, again, it is the most fulfilling set of circumstances and like structures that I've had so far. And who knows what I will want even a year from now, much less five, 10, who knows Absolutely. You know, what later. That's, that's a future Michelle problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in terms of gender, what is sort of the makeup of your various partners? Are, are they predominantly one gender or another or what? I would say that still these days that most of the people that I interact with, um, you know, in dating or whatever, are still men. And that's something I think about a lot, because I think it's still the thing I have the blueprint for the best. Mm -hmm. That's the one that I can navigate the easiest. Mm -hmm. And I am saying that, especially like cis men are easy <laughs> in in a way, <laughs> in a way to get yeah. certain things from. Um And I'm not 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 in like a Machiavellian way. Like it's like I am a proponent of like it being very mutually fun and pleasurable and stuff. But I guess I feel less intimidated in a way because I have more of that map. I have more of that blueprint. I know the beats and I can, I could go free form <laughs> with mm -hmm. them. I can jazz it up a little bit and, um, yeah, and be most comfortable with that. Um, so yeah, I have partners of a variety of genders, but I will say that cis men are still the highest quantity within that. And now it's time for the lowdown. The things we're dying to know, but would usually be too polite to ask any good girl. Do you have sex during your period? Fortunately, these days, because I have the arm implant birth control, I don't get periods anymore. But oh. I have had sex during my period and it's more a matter of their comfort rather than my comfort mm. <laughs> with regard to that. What's the approximate number of sex partners you've had? Um God, I'd I'd have to consult this Excel sheet, but <laughs> it's about seventy. What's your favorite sex toy? Favorite sex toy. Um I can be partial to a variety of clit suction toys. Right now I'm using a wand from Unbound. What's your favorite sex position? I really like, a lot of people think this is surprising, as surprising as me saying that like vanilla is my favorite ice cream flavor, but <laughs> I really like missionary, especially like with a, with like a hefty pillow under the butt. Like missionary is real good. Yeah. <laughs> Do you prefer to initiate or for your partner to initiate in the bedroom? Uh, historically, I have preferred partners initiating, but I am slowly but surely working on empowering myself to initiate more and really find joy out of that. All right. Are you generally more active or more passive during lovemaking? I would say I take on more of a passive role. I can definitely be a really good pillow princess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you prefer clit stimulation or penetration? 
When I'm masturbating, I think I prefer clit stimulation, and even then, pretty broad. But uh, during partnered sex, I would say I prefer penetration much more. Do you enjoy G-spot stimulation? I think I have enjoyed G-spot stimulation, but something I've learned in the last year is A-spot stimulation. Like, I really like cervical and, like, around the cervix stimulation. Like, that drives me crazy. All right. Do you enjoy having your breasts played with? I think for me, that's like a, it's fine. Like, it doesn't bother me or anything, but it doesn't, it's not like an especially uh, important erogenous zone for me. Do you think it's generally easy or challenging for you to orgasm? Uh, during partner sex, notoriously very difficult. <laughs> Is that different from when you're masturbating? Oh, yeah. When I'm masturbating, I can do that. Yeah, mm. which is part of why I don't prioritize it as much during partnered sex, because mm -hmm. there are a whole lot of other things that I can get through partnered sex that I can't do by myself, but I can make myself come. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever faked an orgasm? I have, but it's I am proud to say it's been more than five years since I've done that. <laughs> do you prefer the orgasm from masturbating or from sex with another person? Hmm, that's an interesting one. Um I, of course, love making myself orgasm, and there are times where I wish I could orgasm with partners in so much as it would create more connection, not just for the sake of the orgasm. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite thing to do to a partner during sexual play? Mm, I like using my mouth a lot. So a lot of like kissing and licking and like, I love going down on a partner. What kind of touch do you enjoy receiving most? Um, I just, I love just skin on skin. So just like a lot of like, like a palm of someone's hand, like against all parts of my body. And yeah, just almost, almost this uh, being consumed feeling just through the mm -hmm. flesh on flesh. Mm -hmm. What are your hard red lines? The absolute no's? Absolute no's. Um, I would say they have to do with um, my comfort level at the time, because there are times where I won't want rougher type of play um, because I just can't get into that mindset. Um, and then there are other times where I'm okay with that. Um, yeah, I can't uh, say something more specific than that right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the easy question to ask is piss, poop, and blood. Mm, mm, right. And as, so that's part of the thing where it's like, I have done piss play and I feel like every subsequent kink where I thought I wouldn't be into it, like piss play, I've done it, and it's not something I'll seek out. But if a partner likes that, I can also enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, and like, so I feel like, again, like poop play, I don't think like I would prefer it. But it's also not a hard limit for me. And okay. blood is something like blood play is something that I am interested in going into, but I'm in no interest in rushing into that because it can be mm -hmm. so dangerous. All right. What's your ideal frequency of sex? Ideal frequency of sex would probably be every day, maybe weekends off, but <laughs> at least every other day. <laughs> do you have hair down there or are you bare? I do have hair down there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had a threesome or more? Yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and you've already said that you enjoy giving oral. If you're with somebody with a penis, do you swallow or not? I I do swallow. Yes. I love it. <laughs> do you enjoy receiving oral sex? 
I definitely have a much harder time receiving oral sex. It is a much easier for me if it's uh, more like fingering or using a toy. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you ever worry about your smell or taste? I do sometimes, but I think less and less over the years. So if it's not the smell and taste thing, do you know what it is that makes oral more challenging for you? I get into my head very easily during partnered sex. And when someone's like all the way down there and I'm just kind of my head is like left alone up here in a way, (laughs) it can be much more difficult for me to focus. Um, And then I start worrying like because I know it's very difficult really to make me come during partnered sex. So then I worry like, oh, am I taking too long? Is this a burden? Like all, all of these nervous thoughts um, that like, you know, I feel like eventually over time, I'll slowly work on getting over that so that I can enjoy oral sex a bit more. So relatable. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about ass play? Like to me, I've done it enough times to know that it doesn't you know, stimulate me like positively a whole lot. I will engage in it sometimes. Um, like if the other person is really into it and I'm in that, like, I think more carnal type of space, um, mm-hmm. it can still be really fun, but yeah, like receiving it, I'm pretty meh, uh, giving it. I think it was only like maybe two or three years ago where I like ate someone's ass for the first time. And I was like, this is not as bad as I thought it would be. This will go into the repertoire. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What do you consider the quote unquote kinkiest thing you enjoy with the understanding that everyone's scale of kink is completely different? Mm -hmm. Probably consensual non-consent. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Because not everyone will Mm -hmm. know that term. Right. So it is like kink or like sexual play that involves, you know, I mean, kind of what it sounds like, uh, simulating non-consensual sex, but within the context of consent. So like you establish safe words and boundaries and, you know, you really discuss it beforehand and you really have a partner that you can trust and um, like, you know, risk aware, consensual, all of that good stuff with regard to kink and BDSM. Mm-hmm. There are probably a lot of people listening who think of this using a term that we would no longer use sort of in the community, but so that you can recognize what we're talking about. Some of you probably think of this as rape play mm-hmm. or um, as assault play. And so again, we don't use that word anymore because it's really not accurate. Um, but just so that you, I think it's really important for people to hear that this kind of play is okay. It's normal and mm-hmm. it can in fact be really great for some people. So yeah. And like, like with all kings, you know, even, even the quote unquote more minor ones, you know, like, mm-hmm. Find resources, education on it, do your homework, really, um, really prioritize your own safety and whatnot. Yes. And of course, it very well might not be for you. And yeah, just really prioritize your safety around it. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with you if it's mm-hmm. something that you're mm-hmm. interested in. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy dirty talk during sexual encounters? 
I do. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I joked with a partner that I'm really good at yes and. So going back to the initiation <laughs> thing, like I'm not as good at initiating certain things, but I'm really good at yes and in dirty talk. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Have you ever felt a sexual urge that confused you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. I don't think I can think of that at the moment, but absolutely I have. What's your favorite part of your body? Favorite part of my body would probably be, I think, my mouth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's your <laughs> least favorite part of your body? Least favorite part? Um, it, you know, it's one of those things that depends on the day. Like on more neutral days, my feet, because I think feet are weird in general. <laughs> and then also, you know, just like as a, as a body image thing, like, you know, I can definitely get, uh, self-conscious about, about my belly. Yeah. And then again, it depends on the day. Yeah. What's something about your current sex life that isn't quite as satisfying as you'd like it to be? Uh, maybe frequency. Um, and like, I think, it's still definitely a work in progress of this whole really quality over quantity thing. Mm. Um, because like, you know, like uh, of all the sexual partners that I've had, how many of them would I say were like really good sex? You know, like what, what does that number matter if a good portion of those were just like meh or even kind of bad? Yeah. Um, so yeah, just really working on the quality over quantity thing. And finally, what belief did you have about sex as a child or teenager that you wish you could go back and correct her on now? Um, like, I think I would try to tell five-year-old Michelle or whatever, however I can say that to five-year-old Michelle to get this across, that, yes, sex is seen as shameful in society. And there are ways that you have to navigate around that even if you don't feel that much shame yourself. And that's okay mm -hmm. that you don't feel that much shame yourself and that the shame that you do feel is just knowing that like you can't be open <laughs> about it to yeah. like your parents or whatever. But that, uh, yeah, there's really nothing to be ashamed about and uh, be safe, have good boundaries and have fun. <laughs> I think that's an excellent note to end on. <laughs> Michelle, I'm so glad to have had this conversation with you. I know that you do talk about all of these topics online. So where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Yeah, so it's pretty easy. I basically live on Instagram at polyamorous while Asian. And then whenever I do um, write longer form posts, I will also post them on my website, polyamorouswhileasian.com. Excellent. I will put links in the show notes. Michelle, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you again for having me on. That's it for today. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As a sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. If you have questions or comments about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. 
Full show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. And you can follow me at Good Girls Talk on the socials for more sex positive content. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. While listening to this show is free, producing it is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I'll gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. Good girls talk about sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Until next time, here's to your better sex life.